Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It is going good. I'm feeling really cold right now, Chris. Cold? What, what do you mean? You're in Los Angeles. It's true, actually. And the weather here has been beautiful lately, but I just got back from a cryotherapy session. Cryotherapy? What's that? Can you explain? I'm not sure I've heard of that before. So you know how like you always see like the, the B-roll footage of football players and like ice baths? Yes, yes, totally. I've seen movies like that. Yeah, it always looks terrible. Um, so cryotherapy is essentially um, cold therapy, but um, it's not ice baths because I don't know if I could actually do that. Um, but you go into this chamber and it's, I think it's 167 degrees below zero. And you kind of just like go into this like freezing chamber. And the whole idea behind cryotherapy is that when your body is um, introduced to really extreme temperatures, what happens is all of your blood flow flows into your like internal organs because that's what they want to protect, right? They want to protect your heart and your lungs and all these things. But then once you heat back up again, it like rushes blood through your system. Um, and there's a lot of um, healing benefits of that, especially if you have really intense workouts. I've gone in and been super sore from a workout the day before. And you spend three minutes in this like chamber um, where you get frozen essentially. And then you come out and you don't have any muscle soreness. It is like really, really cool and amazing. That sounds really awesome. So once upon a time, I was an exchange student in Finland. And what we did is, I'm the only time I've ever done this in my life, but I, they, uh, they cut a hole in the ice at the end of a dock. And so you'd, you'd run out to the dock and you'd, you'd have to, so you didn't get trapped under the ice. You'd hold on to the ladder, but you'd dunk yourself into, the, into this freezing cold water. And it was just like that. Like you'd feel everything like shrink and, and you'd shiver and your body's trying to keep warm. So you're shaking, um, which I think burns like, a lot of the calories too, just that the, the change in temperature. Mm -hmm. But then in Finland, what was so awesome is you get out and you'd run through the snow to the sauna and you'd jump in the sauna and then it'd be this extreme opposite in temperature so that blood flow would immediately rush through your body because the everything is opening up, you know? And so I think it's very similar to what you're talking about here. It absolutely is. And, you know, people have been doing this for centuries, right? Um, this like extreme, like cold and hot. Some people take cold showers, you know, it's, it's all kind of the same thing. Um, but there's a lot of really cool research coming out about how exposure to extreme cold. And of course we know the opposite extreme hot temperatures where you're sweating, you're detoxing. Um, these are all really, really uh, good for you. Um, actually, I had a very similar experience. I was in Iceland over the summer and there's lots of really cool natural hot springs in Iceland. So um, it's essentially like a hot tub, but it's from like the earth. Um, and it's really, really cool. It's really high in sulfur, which is also really good for you. Um, so you sit in these, you know, natural hot springs and some of them get really, really hot. And when I was at one of the, the natural hot springs, there was this kind of like glacier lake right next to these hot springs, which is so interesting that there's so such extreme temperatures, right? Um, and so I was in the, in the sauna or sorry, in the hot spring. And then I was like, you know what? I see people over there and it looks like they're like jumping into this like lake. And of course I'm like a super extreme person. I'm like, yeah, like I'm going to do it. Um, and I did it. And honestly, it felt like people, it felt like I was getting stabbed all over my body, but afterwards you feel amazing. And so it was so interesting. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's what your, your Finland story reminded me of, of uh, my experience in Iceland over the summer. And what, what made you want to check out cryotherapy? You know, so I, I'm really interested in, you know, trying all types of interesting health things. Somebody had told me about cryotherapy and I thought, oh, like that sounds cool. Um, so basically the last couple of days I've been doing, it's, it's seven days of cryotherapy because there's some research about how like if you do it every day, um, you see kind of like maximum healing benefits. So I'm like always up for trying something new, especially if it comes to like weird like health things. And I feel like I'm in the Mecca of, you know, weird health things in Los Angeles. So I was like, I'm going to try this out and see how it goes. And this was actually my last day. And, and everyone's like, how, how's it, how does it make you feel? And the only way I can describe it, first of all, it's not as cold as you think it is. You put gloves and mittens on and socks and boots. So like, cause your extremities are the ones that lose the blood flow first, which is why frostbite is so typical on like your fingers and your toes. Um, 
Um, it's interesting because when your hands and feet don't get cold, it's cold, but like, I feel like that's the hardest part. Like when you go out in the snow in the middle of the winter, um, you know, that's what gets like really unbearable, right? It's like your fingertips and your toes are the ones that are like frozen. Um, so it's not super cold. And after the three minutes you get out and you feel like you've run a few miles, like you have that kind of like endorphin rush of having exercised and yeah, I didn't exercise. I just stood there. <laughs> well, you know, this seems to be like, um, that's one thing you do to help take care of yourself. Right. And then, and I think maybe that it's the a theme of what we're getting at here today is this, the idea that you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself first, you know, and that there's a, some sort of mindfulness that you have to have about, uh, about your own self-preservation and your own self-awareness and your own self-health so that you can then help others. Absolutely. And I think, you know, all the people listening, whether they're speech therapists, teachers, parents, um, we all are giving a lot of ourselves, right? When we work with children, especially children with special needs, um, we're giving a lot. And I think it's really important to recognize one that we are, you know, in a giving profession. Um, and also, you know, you have to, it's like that, that like now ubiquitous statement, you have to, you know, secure your own life mask before you secure the, the, that of others. Um, and I think it's so important, you know, if your tank is empty, you don't have enough to give. We live in a culture where sometimes I don't think it, I don't think it, it, it reinforces that idea, right? It's like, you know, give, give, give if you're, you know, a parent, like you should be doing this and this and this and doing more and more and more. Um, you know, and I think that we have this idea, like we can do it all, um, which I think at some level is good, right? Because it empowers us. It's like, yeah, like I can be, you know, a parent and I can still work full time and, you know, I can still have a social life, but sometimes we try to do too much, you know, and we, we realize that our tank is empty. And I feel like it's really, really important to have that awareness. Um, and I'm really excited for our guest today, um, Melanie Pensack. She is a Los Angeles based speech therapist and she does a lot of work with mindfulness um, and she does a lot of trainings with SLPs and parents on, you know, how can you make sure when you show up, you know, to therapy, when you show up to spending time with your, with your children, how can you be really present um, and how can you do a lot of self-preservation work so that you don't feel burnout and run down? I would imagine some of the standard strategies apply here, right? Like make sure you're sleeping enough. Make sure you're eating the right sorts of foods. Make sure you're eating. Yes. <laughs> Let alone right, the right sorts of foods. Um, make sure that you uh, take time for yourself. Those are hard strategies to actually put in place, you know? And to your point, I, I'm not sure our culture really embraces those. For as much as there's a, a fitness movements, every commercial you see is for the McCafe, you know what I mean? And the yeah. cinnamon sticks, you know? And so there's just always this conflicting message. Plus, there is this uh, on the go attitude that I know I struggle with all the time, which is if I take the time to, let's say, sit and meditate for five minutes, just like even five minutes in the morning. Uh, I know I, my, my wife got a meditation pillow for me for Christmas this year because we, we were going to start and sit on the pillows every morning and just put on the, there's like a meditation app that um, you can use on the Apple TV. So we're going to sit in there as a family and do it. And that lasted not even a week, you know, because taking five minutes to do anything like that feels like it's five minutes you're not spending on something that uh, something else you're doing, you know, I know the benefits would really outweigh it if I just could spend the time to do it. Absolutely. And you know, it's a practice. Um, and we're going to hear a lot from Melanie about strategies to incorporate so that it makes that practice easier, but it's like anything else. It's like, we know these things are good for us, right? We know eating healthy is good for us, but sometimes that's hard to do. We know that sleeping enough is good for us, but we know that's hard to do. We know that going to the gym is good for us. Also hard to do, but the best way to start doing it is just to start small. Um, it's the same thing we say, you know, when we're talking about AAC, right? Start small and build a habit and build that habit around routines that are already happening. So a perfect example is when I make my coffee in the morning and I'm a coffee addict, as Chris knows, um, I'm drinking coffee right now. Um, when I make my coffee in the morning, it gives me at least five minutes while my coffee is brewing. And that's when I meditate. So I, I have this routine. I wake up and I'm like, I'm so tired. I need coffee. So I go and I like, you know, put the water on and I grind my beans and it's really been transformative. I just started doing this specific routine in January. I've been, you know, 
dabbling in the practice of meditation and mindfulness for a while now. Um, but I started doing this routine and, you know, it's only five minutes. So I spend five minutes, I bring my, my coffee and I sit on, you know, my bed and I'm like, okay, here's my time. My coffee's brewing. And then as soon as I'm done, you know, and it's only five minutes, I'll drink my coffee. And it's kind of like this routine that I've set up and it's really, really wonderful, especially if you can set up morning routines. I feel like any, if you read any, you know, high achiever, um, you know, influencer, you know, in the entrepreneur space, all these, you know, amazing people who are doing amazing things in their careers and in business, they all talk about the importance of a morning routine. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes when I'm doing my meditation, I'll like, all I can think of is I have so much to do today. I don't have time for this. I don't even have time for five minutes. But what I encourage everyone to think about is if you are constantly saying, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough time for this, it's really, you have a bad relationship with time right? Because we can keep, we can say that all day long, you know, and I think the reality is we say that because we have all these expectations of all these things that we need to do. Um, and so it, that's been something that's been really, you know, eye-opening for me is what is my relationship with time? Cause I am the person that's like, I wish I had more time. I don't have enough time, you know, and you know, time is a, is a construct, right? Um, so we, we really need to think about how we're approaching, you know, this whole concept of, I don't have enough time. And if you don't have enough time for five minutes of meditation, like something's wrong, right? Like if you don't have enough time to like spend five minutes to do something that's good for your, you know, your mind and your body, then we really need to think about that, right? Sure. I mean, I couldn't agree more. The, the, the word that kept coming up there is, is routine before even time, right? And if you have those established routines, then you're making the time for it and then not breaking that routine. So something I don't think I've shared on the podcast before, I don't think I've even shared it with you, Rachel, but if you were to go back and look at my old Facebook pictures from, let's say, 15 years ago, 10, even 10 years ago, you'd see that I was pushing close to 200 pounds. So, and I'm a 5'8 guy. So it, uh, it was, it was starting to become unhealthy. I was unhealthy. I didn't re and I didn't even realize it because it just creeps up on you that, uh, in the culture that we grew up in and with my family, you just ate and ate and ate and you didn't really think about it. And I get, it was my son who is now, he's going to be a freshman next year, but it was kindergarten year. Um, one of my friends said, Hey, have you heard of the paleo diet? And I said, no, what's the paleo diet? He's like, like at the caveman diet, you just eat, you know, you don't eat things at cavemen, you know? And I was like, okay. no potato chips, <laughs> no potato chips, <laughs> really no breads at all, you know? And I thought, okay, why don't I try this? And I realized something about myself is that I'm really good at challenges. And in fact, I think a lot of people are really good at challenges. Like, could I just not eat bread for a week? You know, that's my challenge, not eat bread for a week. And when you make it a challenge, it can establish that routine. And that's exactly what happened with me is that I got into a routine that I, well, I, I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not going to cheat on myself. I've made this commitment to not eat bread for a week. Well, now can I do that for the next week and next week? And before I knew it, it was routine. And then I started exercising and got on the treadmill. Well, can I get on the treadmill and just walk for 15 minutes? Just 15 minutes? I can, heck, I can check my email while I'm walking on the treadmill. Routine, routine. And before I knew it, the weight started coming off. And something else that goes along with that that I, I'll share is that it created a mindset for me. A lot of people will say, oh my gosh, I've never felt better when, once you lose the weight. I actually didn't feel any different. It was if I stopped. If I stopped the routine, if I stopped that, that taking the time to eat right, to sleep right, to do the exercise, it's when I stopped, that's when I felt like crap, right? Yeah. And that's when I noticed the difference. So those routines to make the time, it's a small investment of time that has huge gains later in giving you even more time on the back end. Exactly. And I, you know, I always, I think back to a graduate school actually, which they were like the dark years. Um, it was like really intense. I was working like three jobs and going to grad school full time. It was, it was really rough, but um, I always think about how at the end of the day, you know, I say I had a big exam the next day. At the end of the day, I found that I was trying so hard to focus and I was trying so hard to study. And I just realized I am not good when I'm tired. My brain does not function optimally. And so it was like I would spend, you know, three hours at night studying. But what I quickly realized was if I were to just set my alarm an hour earlier the next day, I would wake up and yeah, I'd be a little tired. Um, but I was so much more clear-headed. And so I feel like it's, it's exactly like that 
that idea of knowing you and how you function best um, and really making sure you're maximizing your efforts, right? Like what I could do on a tired brain might take me three hours, but if I have a fresh brain, it would only take me one. Um, and so I think we really need to think about, you know, working smarter um, as I feel like everybody says. Um, and that's something that I learned in grad school. The other thing that I really liked that you, you shared, Chris, was you created small change. Small changes over time add up to big change. And we can talk about this through the lens of, you know, working out and diet and, and anything, really. I mean, it translates even to AAC, right? Um, you know, when we're, we're coaching communication partners, we want to make sure that we're giving them small changes. The worst thing in the world is when you give somebody a task or even you create a task in your own brain that's too large, right? Because we have this like all or nothing mentality. It's especially, this is especially relevant like New Year's resolutions times, right? Everyone's like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. I'm going to get a six pack. I'm going to have all these big goals, right? And I, I'm not saying big goals aren't good because I do think thinking long-term about what you really want, you know, and then we can reverse engineer it and we can create those small steps that add up to big change. But I think that starting with like, okay, I'm going to not eat bread for a week or I'm going to go to the gym three times this week because I feel like if you have, and research shows, if you have small changes over time, it adds up. And I think that, you know, it's especially relevant because, um, you know, we don't want all or nothing thinking like, oh, I messed up. I ate one piece of bread. Like, oh no, it's over. Right. I feel like everybody has that black or white thinking and that's where like we really get into trouble. Um, so in addition to, you know, creating small change, I would argue that another thing is just really trying to recognize and be aware of all or nothing thinking. Um, say you're like, I'm not going to eat fast food for a month and you end up eating it once. Well, at least you didn't eat it 10 times. Right. So we could totally throw it out the window and be like, oh, I failed at my goal. But instead, you know, really just being kind to yourself and realizing, you know, okay, like I had fast food or whatever, whatever it is that you're trying to, to do and change. But then just the next day, it's a fresh start. Um, because I know that that's where a lot of people get into trouble, even myself, um, when I'm trying to, you know, reach my goals, that all or nothing thinking is such a roadblock. Yeah. Well, and that can happen with the routines. So I have the Fitbit, right? I'm tapping it right now. Can you hear it, everybody? I'm tapping my Fitbit in my... <laughs> I have a Garmin, a Garmin Connect. And so I was um, constantly hitting my my step count, you know, of 10,000 steps a day, right? And then a particular Monday, I had a meeting that went late and there was a lot of traffic getting home. And then I had uh, stuffed with this, this, the kids and I just didn't get it. It was like 5,000 steps. It was a pathetic, you know, attempt today. And that, that could be... Uh, well, geez, I didn't get it today. I'm out of my routine. I guess I'm not going to get it anymore. And it could just be this downward spiral that sends me through like, well, now I guess I, I'm never going to get 10,000 again, you know? Um, or I can think of it as, no, this is just that one day and tomorrow I got to get in and try and do um, maybe 12,000 if I can, you know, to make up for, the, for, for what I missed. And even if I don't, even if I don't, just hitting my goal again, getting back on that horse is a way to keep the, the mindset and mentality rolling. Yeah. And keeping positive, right? We tell ourselves these negative stories. So, you know, if you don't hit your goal one day, oh man, I knew I couldn't do it. Or you tell yourself all of these stories, these negative stories. And so I feel like, you know, what you're going to hear from Melanie is how can we challenge that? How can we build awareness so that we can recognize, oh my gosh, this is myself telling myself this negative story. Um, so that then you're able to, to shift your perspective um, and shift the story that you're telling ourselves because the reality is, we are the story we tell ourselves, right? Our life is the story that we make it. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the benefits of mindfulness is, you know, focusing on those positives, which is why something like a gratitude journal, um, you know, every day, writing down three things that you're really grateful for in your life. Um, you know, research shows this shifts the way you think. There's neuroscience behind this, um, which is so cool to think about. But I just think it's, it's important to, to recognize it. And it starts with just practicing, practicing the, building that awareness, which is what mindfulness is, essentially. All right, Rachel. So just this past week, I went to a trauma-informed awareness training. And one of the things they were talking about at this training was the idea of mindfulness and self-care. And they gave out a sheet here. 
for that, listeners. I have a sheet, actual piece of paper, which is a big deal. People who know me, I'm not really a paper person anymore. But they have a sheet here that has different things. And I'm just curious how many you and I just talked about here in the last few minutes. So I'm going to read off a few of them, okay? Ready? The first one is, remember that it's the little things that count, which I think we talked about that, little drops in the bucket, right? Changing small things. Um, Be forgiving. I did eat that piece of bread today. That's okay. Uh, that's That's a really important one. I feel like we're the hardest critics on ourselves, right? It's like we have these expectations and if we don't meet them, like we failed. Definitely. I love that one. Do one thing at a time. The idea of multitasking is really sort of a myth. You're 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 really can only focus on one thing at a time and do that one thing well. So if you're in a workshop or a training, focus on that workshop and training. Don't be checking your email because you won't be doing a great job at answering your email and you won't be doing a great job focusing on that training. Just pick one and do it. Exactly. Uh, uh, when you go to bed at night, you mentioned this, Rachel. When you go to bed at night, express gratitude for the day you were given. Express gratitude for the people that you work with and the people that you get to correspond with. You, you, you frequently are in my gratitude journal, Chris. Oh. Like, <laughs> I, I just, you know, and, and the thing with the gratitude journal is you can have the worst day in the world, literally the worst day, but it forces you to think, okay, there has to be three moments today that I can be thankful for, right? And a lot of times it goes back to your family and your health um, and things like that. But it, sometimes it's like, my coffee was at the perfect temperature this morning and I just loved it, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it really, it's training the brain to focus on the positive. Now, the next one is take time to be silent. Listen to what's within you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that meditation that we talked about. If you take a few minutes to not feel like you need to be on your phone, not feel like you need to be talking to somebody else, uh, just be quiet reflection. It can be such a game changer. You know, and I think the other thing with this is it can oftentimes be really uncomfortable. And I think we live in a society where we avoid uncomfortable feelings and uncomfortable states of being. Like, think about it. We're like, you know... In the summer, we're in air conditioning. In the in the winter, we're in heat. You know, we don't have a lot of discomfort. We have a, a, a society that's, you know, very much focused on convenience and comfort. And so I think that, you know, it's really easy when you're you're sitting with yourself to like, all these things start coming up and you're bored or you're, you know, you start feeling like sad or lonely or all these things can come up. Um, and so it's really important to kind of sit with that discomfort um, instead of running away from it. You know, and people do this by, you know, overeating, drinking alcohol, all these things to kind of mask um, what's inside. And so, you know, I think it's really important to challenge yourself to sit with discomfort because we're not used to it, but I think it's really important. You know, I think the more you do that, the easier it gets, you know, it's sort of like running, you know, running is not comfortable for most people, but eventually it becomes comfortable because you've challenged yourself to do that, right? So push through that discomfort. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's such a good strategy, Rachel. Uh, There's more here on this list, like create a rhythm of action and contemplation in your workday. That's sort of like that. Uh, What's another one here? Oh, eat nourishing food. We talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's more on here. I could go on and on, but I think we've, we've touched upon many of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited uh, for you guys to hear the the interview that I did with Melanie today. Um, and if you guys haven't already, please, 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 I would love for you to join our Facebook group. You know, there's lots of really great discussions going on in there. Um, all you have to do is search Talking With Tech and you can join the group. Um, also, we're really trying to get more reviews on iTunes. I love reading your reviews. Um, so if you haven't already and you love the podcast, which you guys, you guys reach out to us and tell us how much you love it, which I am so grateful for. Um, speaking of gratitude journal, I'm so grateful for our, our wonderful, amazing audience that listens every week. But please, please, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. We love to hear how this podcast impacts you and your practice. Um, and we also, you know, we want to share it. We want more people to see it. So um, that that's what leaving a review actually does. I feel like we always talk about reviews, Chris, but we don't talk about the, the why, right? The why is we want to spread the AAC message. We want to spread awareness about AAC um, and help people feel more comfortable with it and, and utilize it in their practice. I would love to challenge people to push past their discomfort, to to reach out on Facebook and share one thing they do to be more mindful, one strategy they've used. Maybe it's mm-hmm. foods they've chosen to eat or something they stopped doing or uh, a way they weave in mindfulness into their routine. I would love to see that over on the Facebook group. I love that, Chris. Ooh, I like this challenge. Um, you know, I think it's a really, really good, um, and we would love to hear what everybody does because I think the more we can kind of crowd 
crowdsource this. Um, you might give somebody else an idea of something they might be able to try. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's really important that we all help each other take care of ourselves, right? Um, it's so important. You know, we take care of all the other people in our lives. We take care of all of the children that we work with and our family and, you know, parents take care of their children, but it's really important to take care of ourselves. So that's a, the final message that I want to leave before we lead into the interview. Um, so without further ado, let's listen to my interview with Melanie Pensack. idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madal, and I'm so excited today. We're joined by Melanie Penzek. Not only is Melanie a speech-language pathologist with over 13 years of experience, but she is making a profound impact on preventing therapist burnout by leading meditation groups and seminars for therapists who work with children with special needs. She currently owns a private practice in Los Angeles called Destination Speech, where she provides speech therapy in nature and also runs wellness workshops through Airbnb for both clinicians and families. Melanie believes the ability to be aware and accepting of the present moment is a superpower everyone can learn to help live a more joyful life, and she's passionate about helping children, clinicians, and parents learn to incorporate mindfulness into their everyday life. Melanie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm really excited to be here and to share this message. Yeah. So just like start off by explaining to our listeners who you are and kind of how you how you came to mindfulness and, you know, obviously you're a speech language pathologist. So I'd love to hear all about your, your journey. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I've always been interested in health and wellness really since college. And I had participated in a lot of different types of meditations and explored the health and wellness world. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I really was blown away by the resources that we have here in this city. And a lot of the colleagues that I was working with at the time, they were involved with children with emotional regulation issues. And they were doing a lot of work with inner kids and with the work from mindful schools programs. And I really saw how it was impacting the children that they were working with, with their attention, their emotional regulation, their compassion. And I thought that that was something that I wanted to bring into my work as a speech pathologist as well. And so my journey with that really began when I started to dive exclusively into mindfulness practices for myself. And I really focused on only that type of meditation. And it was kind of wild, the changes that happened in my own life. I really was able to increase my attention and to increase my ability to notice my own habits of thinking. And so I really realized that my mind was always in the future. I was planning a lot and thinking ahead instead of being in the present moment. And when I learned that pattern, it felt so powerful because then I was able to come back to the present moment again and again. And it allowed me to have more space in my life, freedom, and things flowed just a little more naturally and easily. And the world just kind of opened up from there. Um, so I thought that I really wanted to bring this work in with my children as well, because if it increased my attention and my emotional regulation and my ability to be compassionate, I thought that would really help with the children I was working with. And so I started just with really simple mindfulness exercises with the kids, having them breathe having them get into their body, having them move or just sit and feel the breath. And I saw firsthand how it helped them to be more open to the speech activities that we were working on and allowed them to hear what I was saying and to really process what I needed them to do to achieve their speech goals. Yeah, I love everything you're saying. And, you know, of course, we know each other through the mindfulness space. And also, you know, we're both speech language pathologists in, in Los Angeles. I just want to make sure that we, everybody understands when we talk about mindfulness, what exactly are we talking about? Can you kind of give a definition? I feel like it's this, this buzzword that's kind of being thrown around now. Um, but what, what is mindfulness? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think it's really important to address that. It's everywhere right now, which is wonderful. So we want to be really clear about what it is and what it isn't. Mindfulness is entering into the present moment experience with a really clear awareness, clear attention of what's happening in the present moment. We're stepping out of autopilot. So that busyness that we're in, entering into a space of what's actually happening now to really know what's happening with not only our body, but in our mind, with our thought, and what's also happening in our emotional lives as well. And we do this with a quality of really kindness and compassion and in a non-judgmental way. So we might notice these things happening, but often there's an inner critic or some judgment that we you know, place on ourselves. So we really learn to go inward and learn about ourselves in a way that's gentle and open and receptive. I think that's a perfect um, highlight is the, that inner critic. I feel like we all have that inner critic and, um, you know, we all kind of tell ourselves this story. And a lot of times our version of the story when we're talking or thinking about ourselves is pretty negative. And it's, it's building that awareness to even recognize, oh my goodness, I'm telling myself this story. Um, you know, cause we're always kind of thinking, um, thinking in the future. I could really relate when you were talking about how you were always planning. I feel like I'm a planner, um, through the building of my meditation practice, I've really recognized that. Like, wow, I'm constantly planning. You know, it's really hard for me to kind of be in the moment um, and, and recognize that, but it, it's done through building that awareness. So, you know, kind of speaking to that, building the awareness, what are some ways that people can start being more present and in the, you know, in the moment? Absolutely. So we want to enter into the present moment experience by having a point of attention. And so if you have a sitting meditation practice, the easiest way to build this initial attention to what's happening in our present moment is through the breath. The breath is always with us and it's breathing us and it's there. And so we bring our minds into feeling the actual sensations of the breath. So not thinking about breathing, but what does it feel like to actually have my belly rise and fall? The whole inhalation, the whole exhalation. So we're not telling our breath to move in a certain way. We're just learning to be with what actually is happening in our own bodily experience. And, and this can be done in other ways too. It can be done through movement. If the breath is something that causes more anxiety, you can also enter into mindfulness by feeling your body you know, standing or feeling your body walking or feeling your body actually seated in a chair. Uh, a perfect example that I um, just thought about is when I get out of bed in the morning, I love the way that it feels on my feet when I step onto the floor, which sounds like such a, you know, mundane thing. But if you're really present, um, I'd encourage all our listeners to try this when you wake up in the morning, you know, before you actually just hop out of bed, just be really intentional about putting your feet on the floor. And I love the pressure that I feel like my body and the, my feet on the floor. It's just a perfect example of really, you know, being in the moment and being present. And that's a great example of how to start your day off in a mindful um, state of mind, right? Grounded, feeling the feet on the earth, connected to what's happening. And you can even take it one step further if you're lying in bed and before you get up and move, like what does it feel like to have your head on the pillow and feel your blankets on you and feel the heaviness and feel the breath? And that takes really maybe five seconds to tune into that. And you can start your day off in a really nice, mindful space. So I think a lot of people who are listening are like, oh, wow, that sounds really great. But how do I remember to do that? How do I remember before I hop out of bed and start my day to do these things? Do you have any suggestions? Yes. So it's definitely um, something where people need to think about how you develop a habit, right? It takes practice. So it's called a mindfulness practice for a reason. The more you do it and the more that you fit it into your everyday life, the more likely it is to stick. There's the idea of five, five, five. So practicing a mindfulness practice, whether it's breathing or in the body, five minutes a day, five days a week for five weeks. And so how does that feel to commit to something like that to then make it more a natural part of your daily life? And visuals are also a great way to help you remember things. I'm a visual learner, which I'm sure many of our listeners are too. And so putting a post-it note up, breathe, you know, checking in with your body um, 
having something on the mirror or the refrigerator or something pop up from your phone you know, a little calendar message. Where is my mind right now? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this is a, a AAC focused podcast. So we love visuals on this podcast. Um, so there's tons of visual supports that you can <laughs> probably utilize to remind yourself. Um, and what I will say is that, you know, it's like any habit, you have to just do it over time and then it becomes more automatic. Um, when I was first starting to get interested in meditation and mindfulness, you know, I, I was kind of dabbling here and there but it wasn't until I actually set an intention, okay, I'm going to do one meditation every day for the next three weeks. And then I kept building off of that momentum. And so I, I, I will say that the more regularly I practiced in meditation, the more mindful moments started trickling into my everyday experiences. So, you know, I, I would be driving my car and I would just notice like, wow, like I can kind of feel the vibration of the steering wheel right now. Um, you know, and these thoughts would kind of come into my everyday, my everyday life. And I feel like that was when I really started seeing all the benefits was I was like, Oh my goodness. Like I'm, I'm, I'm right here right now. You know, I'm, I'm washing dishes and I'm, I'm feeling the warmth on my hands. And I feel like it's those types of experiences that come kind of, you know, automatically when you start just being intentional about, you know, just sitting down for five or 10 minutes a day. I'm really glad that you brought that up because there's a common misconception that meditation is kind of disassociating from life and removing yourself from life when you're sitting in a quiet room and you're meditating. And it's actually through this work that you do seated or on the meditation cushion, learning to come back into the body, learning to deal with whatever comes up in daily life. When you learn that in a seated formal meditation way, then when you go out into the real world where we live every day, interact with people and challenges, you have a skill set. You're developing tools that allow you to then deal with what's happening out in the real world. And that means coming back into the body and feeling what's happening in every moment. And as speech language pathologists, you know, that's what we do, right? We, we work with tools. We give children tools. So I love the idea of incorporating this into your therapy. You know, I think that probably starting with the breath feels like a really good place for kids, especially. Um, are there any specific strategies or ideas that you have, um, you know, for our listeners who are listening and thinking, oh, this sounds really great, you know, and maybe they have some experience with, you know, meditation and mindfulness for themselves, but they're thinking, how am I going to get a kid, you know, to sit and do something like this? Do you have any um, tricks up your sleeve? Absolutely. So activity-based mindfulness that is play-based is essential for helping kids to understand these ideas. The idea is that we want to periodically integrate in really fun, playful activities where they learn the concepts. So then when they're in a tough and challenging situation, we can actually pull on the themes that they've already learned from. So I think there are a couple different directions that we can go with, but one of the really easy things that we can do with children is just teach them to feel where they feel their own breath the strongest. And so doing something really simple, like having them close their eyes, be seated and take a deep breath and seeing, are they feeling the anchor of the breath in the belly, the chest, in the nose? And if that is something that is a little bit higher level for the kids, you can adapt this into a really easy activity with a Haberman ball. So there are visual tools that we can use with the breathing balls. And there are different exercises that we can do to help kids be aware of their breath. And one of them is getting a Haberman ball and you just have them open and close it. And if they need assistance, you can hand over hand, help them open and close it. And we start to count and feel the breath right there in that moment. And when they start to learn that their belly is moving, it will sync up with the own breath that they have. And then whenever they're in a tough situation, you can actually then say, okay, pause and breathe. And that idea of breathing is less abstract. They have more of a context to it. Yeah. And something I do with kids is I'll do visual supports, right? So I'll do, um, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen the infinity loop. So it's kind of a, an, an eight. So it's, it's turned on its side. So it's horizontal and you know, you go through one part and when you get to the center, you stop and you switch. So you go around the circle and then you take a deep breath in. And then when you get to the center, then you start breathing out. And so it's kind of breathe in, breathe out. And that's something that's really calming sometimes for the children that I work with. 
um, I specialize in kids with autism. And so a lot of times they have anxiety and they have emotional regulation issues. And so that's been something that's really effective. Um, I also know square breathing. It's kind of a similar concept, um, but just having a square and, you know, tracing your finger along it, um, breathing in and breathing out as you go to different parts of the square. Um, another thing that I do too is um, sometimes I'll have kids lay on the ground and put like a stuffed animal or something on their belly um, to kind of see how their belly, just their breath, can make the stuffed animal go up and down. It's a, kind of like a tactile feedback that can really help kids um, start pairing their breath with their body. Those are great ideas. And there's another one too where kids can actually pretend to be holding like a cup of soup or hot cocoa and then breathing to blow out and make it cool. So you can pretend like you're breathing really slowly to cool down whatever they're going to drink or eat. Mm -hmm. And even pretending that there's a candle too, like a birthday candle that they're blowing out. So all of these activity play-based types of visual, tactile, experiential activities then help us to be able to create an idea of what is breathing so that when they're in a challenging situation, they understand what it means when we say pause and breathe. Right. We take for granted the fact that we understand what that means, right? As like a calming strategy, like, oh, you know, just breathe. Um, but we need to teach that to kids, right? What does that mean? And how can we control that in our own bodies? Um, you know, and I, I say this because I've had a lot of experiences where, you know, I, I try to teach deep breathing and a lot of times what kids will do is I'll breathe really fast, right? Because when they're like, you know, emotionally charged, they're like, <sighs> and I'm like, okay, we need to slow it down. Um, and I, and I love the idea of the candle. I've done that before. Um, also pretending to blow bubbles, um, all these kind of play-based activities where you can kind of train kids, um, with activities that they might've already done, um, you know, like blowing off hot cocoa or a candle and things like that. Um, so it's, it's really important to kind of teach those strategies, um, because like I said, we, we take for granted that we understand what that means and how to do it. So I would love to think through the lens of children with complex communication needs because, you know, a lot of our listeners, um, they're either parents to children with complex communication needs, they're, you know, speech language pathologists or teachers that are working with children with complex communication needs. So how does mindfulness integrate into this specific population? I'd like to address this question from the lens of adults working with kids and then from the child perspective. As the level of children's distress and needs increase, so do the demands from the parents and those who are working with children. Mm -hmm. And children are watching and learning from us as adults. And so a part of this equation is really modeling how we want our children to respond when we have challenges and distress, right? So mindfulness is all about being in the present moment and accepting what's happening in the current experience. So we want to meet all of the stresses and challenges and the thoughts and the emotions that are coming up with kindness. And we want to do this by pausing. And why do we pause? We pause, we come back into the body to create some space to calm down and actually then respond wisely and skillfully. And that's what we're asking of our children, right? If they're distressed or they're challenged, we're wanting them to make a choice to respond and react to whatever is challenging, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really important in this equation for parents and therapists to be doing their own inner work because the more that they take care of themselves and learn what's happening in their own minds, then they can be able to really help the children understand what's happening in their own minds and their own emotional life. It really helps to build the capacity to handle everything that's happening. And that's what we want for our kids. We want them to be able to develop the capacity to handle all of the ups and downs, right? So modeling is really important. And that's from the parent perspective. But for the kids, we want them to develop stronger attention. We would love them to develop more balance in their emotional reactions and to develop more kindness and compassion, right? And so through these practices, they can then develop increased self-regulation, compassion for others. And we do that through the play. And we can make it as simple as we need to, depending on what the challenges are. There's a quote that I really love, and it's, uh, children learn more from what you are than what you teach. And so I feel like this, that quote fits perfectly with this because children really absorb the energy that you put off as an adult. So if an adult starts yelling, like, 
the propensity is that a child will, you know, start yelling or, you know, that will fuel their emotions. So I think it is really important that we're thinking through the lens of how can I, you know, improve upon my own practice and how does that affect, you know, the work that I do with kids? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and, it, and it's, it's, it's multi-level, right? It's like, okay, also, you know, I need to take care of myself, right? Clinicians need to really adopt, um, you know, self-care practices that really reserve their tank. I feel like I always talk about it as a tank. And if your tank's empty, like you can't, you can't do anything, right? Like you can't help serve others. Um, We're in a serving profession. So um, I think through that lens, but also just, you know, in order to truly understand how to teach these skills, um, you have to really start learning it yourself, right? Like we can't, um, you know, we can't go into teaching mindfulness if we were not already, you know, at some level, you know, familiar with the practice and kind of the ups and downs. Um, and I'm sure you can understand that really well because you've kind of dived deep into that, uh, that training component. So speaking to that, you know, we've kind of touched on ways that we want to bring awareness and things like that um, and building habits, but are there any tools that you can think of that are really good launching points for people who really want to get started? Um, maybe they have no experience with meditation or mindfulness, any great books or resources that adults who are interested in learning can access? Yes. So there's something that's really simple that I think everybody can easily adapt. There's an acronym called STOP, S-T-O-P. And so just even having a picture of a stop sign, having those letters, having that available for you and your child in different places or in a classroom or in a speech therapy room, the visual reminder to actually stop, to take a breath, to observe what's happening in the moment, and then to proceed wisely. And so this is something that can easily be added into whatever your treatment plan is or to whatever space that you are in to help you just start to become aware of taking that pause. I really like that stop. You know, obviously it's something we can teach kids, but I find it particularly useful for me, right? A lot of times, you know, when you're working with children with complex communication needs, there's some kind of behavior things that go on alongside of that, right? And I need to make sure that I'm really stopping and taking a deep breath before I automatically react or, you know, have an emotional reaction to something that a child has done. You know, lots of things happen in my therapy sessions and, you know, kids pee on the floor and like do all these crazy things. And I could like react to that, right? As a, you know, a human being, oftentimes we just react instead really stopping and taking that breath to pause and then respond. I love differentiating reaction versus responding. You know, reaction, it feels like it's not in your control. It's like a reflex almost. But responding is like, I'm really being intentional about how, you know, I'm treating the situation and who I am and what I'm bringing to the situation. Um, and, And I think that that's one of the benefits of practicing mindfulness is that you have that space to just stop for just a a millisecond and you can then figure out how you'd like to proceed. There are different apps that are out there and available for people to be using. From an adult perspective, you can use an app called Headspace. There's Stop, Breathe, and Think. There's actually an article that just came out that's reviewing some of the different adult apps and which ones are um, beneficial for different reasons. So I'm happy to share that with you. Maybe put it in the show notes or something if you have that that we can share with people. Yes. From a child perspective, I really adore Susan Kaiser Greenland's activity cards. She has mindful game cards that are very straightforward and practical and easy for parents to use and easy for therapists and other people working with children to start to incorporate into their daily activities. Mm-hmm. And she has a book, The Mindful Child, which is very good for people who are wanting to learn a little bit more about that. The app that I use the most with kids is called Stop, Breathe, and Think Kids. And it is a beautiful app where children go in and they can pick whatever emotion that they are feeling at that time. And from that particular emotion picture, there will be three or four videos that pop up that are movement-based or mindful-based, and they can then follow along with this really cute animated video and learn how to be mindful in that particular moment. 
I love that. And I also love apps. So I'm really excited to check these out. We'll definitely link to these in the show notes for you guys who are interested in, in downloading them and seeing what they have to offer. Um, I love the idea of books. Um, actually, there's a book that I like. It's called Mindful Monkey, Happy Panda. It frames a child's experience when your brain is wandering. Uh, we call that uh, monkey, monkey brain. And so like the monkey's kind of jumping all over. Um, and then the, the panda is the kind of uh, the converse of that. Um, and I just really, really like that framing. And um, it's, it's, it's better for kids who are a little bit older, but um, I really like reading about it and talking about it with kids. And it's a, that's a really good book. Are there any other books that you think are really great for, for kids? Yes. There's one called Calm Down Time and it is really very simple. It lays out how to breathe when you're feeling upset and many toddlers or children that um, have some delays really benefit from the visuals and the language in that book. And there's another one called My Magic Breath that would be better for children that are a little bit older, but it walks you through how breath is really important and how um, we can make our breath magic. I love that. And I always think, you know, I wish that somebody taught me this when I was growing up because I feel like I've seen such huge benefits in my life and um, I'm sure you have too. And I just wish that I would have learned all these strategies sooner because I think it's so important, um, you know, of course, from an emotional regulation standpoint, but just, um, I feel like I have more joy in my life and I appreciate, you know, small things that I might not even have noticed before. So I, I just think that, you know, it's really great that you are advocating to teach kids about mindfulness at a really young age. And I think it's something that we should be considering. Um, and, you know, exciting enough, I feel like they're they're starting to really um, impress upon the importance of this in schools. I know that Goldie Hawn, she was, um, she was at ASHA, I think when it was in Los Angeles. Um, so not last year, but the year before. And I watched her present. She was the keynote speaker and she talked about how they're doing a lot of mindfulness training in schools and how effective it is. Um, so I'm just really happy to, to see that this is kind of trickling into the education world um, because I think it's a really important skill for kids to learn. It becomes then a part of everyday life. It's not something that you have to think about and it becomes just something that a tool in your toolbox that you can go to really at any time. And there are so many different grassroots organizations that are popping up that are doing more of this work. Susan Kaiser Greenland's program is called Inner Kid. Mindful Schools is reaching out to a lot of different schools in the area and in the San Francisco Bay area. And that there are just many, many more that are popping up all around the country now, which is beautiful to see. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, so before we, we head out, I really am interested by this nature-based speech therapy. Like what is nature-based speech therapy? So nature-based speech therapy is the type of therapy that I transitioned to after reading Richard Louv's work, where he talks about nature deficit disorder. And so he's talking about how children and adults are having a lot of health issues because they're spending less time in nature. And so I know that I personally felt so many benefits from starting to prioritize spending more time outside in my life. And I thought that it would be really important to start to bring this into the work that I'm doing with children. And so when I'm working with children outside, it's such a beautiful thing to see how actually experiencing the world through the sensory system and feeling what's happening in the outside environment helps to bring us into awareness and clarity. And that helps with our learning. We learn through experience and we learn by being present. And so I'm really teaching receptive language, expressive language, social communication, and sensory-based embodied understanding of the natural world. That's awesome. I, I mean, I love being outside. So the idea of being able to work outside is right up my alley. Um, I feel like sometimes I leave my office and I'm like, oh my God, like I didn't even see sunlight today. Sunlight barely hit this, you know, face of mine. Um, so I just love that work that you're doing and I'm really excited. You know, we're lucky in Southern California that we could, you know, go outside all year round. Um, and so I think let's take advantage of that. Let's like, you know, get kids outside and like you said, using kind of multi, multi uh, sensory activities and um, there's so many different things that you can do. So it's really cool to hear the work that you're doing. I find that children just naturally ask more questions, which is great because then it provides more opportunity for us to work on question formulation and to work on the grammar part of it. I find that children are commenting and we can incorporate in descriptive words and sentence structure and 
colors and texture words. And I'm finding that children are really developing a love with the earth, which I think is really important in the environmental crisis that we are in right now. You know, one of my teachers says that we protect what we love. And if we take children outside and get them engaged with their natural world, we're creating children that love their environment and who are going to be less likely to hurt it and damage it and to change it. And so I think it's really a very critical and important time to get kids outside so that we can support this life for generations to come. Absolutely. I love that. Um, So there's one question that we always ask all of the guests we have on our podcast, and that is if you had a billboard that every SLP saw, what would it say? (laughs) Mine would be a question and it would ask, where is your mind right now? Ooh, I like it. We've never had a question. Everyone always is saying statements. I love this. You're turning it on its head, Melody. (laughs) And I love that question because it is a great check-in question on what is actually happening in the mind in that moment. Are you in planning mode? Are you in fantasy land? Are you replaying a story or an email in your brain? Or are you actually with that child in the game, involved in what's happening in the communication intention? And I think it's great for everybody, right? And if you're driving, especially here in LA, and you see that, where is your mind when you're driving? Are you somewhere else? Are you present, aware of what's happening? (laughs) Yeah. And you know, actually, it's funny that you bring up mindful driving because there are mornings where I like run out the door and I'm like, oh man, like I didn't get to meditate today. And I, you know, I get in my car and I, I take it as a perfect opportunity to, you know, be a little bit more non-traditional, right? We don't always have to sit and practice mindfulness. We can take it wherever we go. Um, you know, so driving in my car for 10 minutes, um, I'm just really aware, right? I'm aware of how the, the steering wheel feels. I'm aware of things that, it, it's amazing the things you see, you go the same way to work every day, but when you're very present and thinking about what you're seeing, you notice all types of things that you never saw before, stores that you never saw and really cool houses that you've never seen. So um, I would encourage everybody to, you know, really think outside the box because it's something that you could really bring to a lot of different activities in your life. Um, And it's something that, you know, if I don't have time to formally sit down in the morning, it's something that I can find a time to do throughout my day. Um, And I think it's especially important when we're working with kids Um, you know, my best sessions are the ones where I'm super engaged in the moment. My phone is, you know, not within arm's reach and I'm really engaged with the child. And I think it's really important to have more moments like that because that's when you really find joy and satisfaction in the work that we do. Um, you know, it's easy to kind of think about the, you know, IP meeting coming up or all of the, the targets or, you know, all these things that come into our brain, but, you know, really being in the moment and being in flow, um, is really, really important because I feel like at the end of that session, you're just, you're a lot more fulfilled and you did a better job. You were with that child and really following that child's lead. It absolutely opens up the door for more natural experiences and a less controlled situation. And we certainly go in with things that we want to accomplish. However, sometimes that can prevent a lot of natural communication and play and experience from happening. I have Mm -hmm. have an example of this. When I was playing with a child at the playground, one day we were just doing a lot of different activities. And I, of course, had a few things in mind that I was trying to achieve. And this child, when I kind of pulled back and took my agenda away from the therapy session for a few minutes, he actually discovered that the way the sun was hitting one of the pieces of the playground equipment, we could make shadow animals and puppets in. And it created this beautiful opportunity for us to talk about animals and body parts and take turns. And other kids started to join into the experience. And if I had been really stuck and not being mindful of what the child was doing, I would have completely prevented that beautiful natural interaction. Absolutely. Um, I think it's so important to, to do that and to be you know aware of that. Similar experiences have happened to me and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. And, and that's when kids really learn. That's when kids, it, what you're teaching sticks because, you know, it's, it's, it's motivating, right? And kids are excited about it. Um, and we talk a lot about motivation on the podcast too. So I'm just happy that that's a, it's a really great reminder for everybody um, to take with them during their therapy sessions. So Melanie, where can people find you um, if they're interested in learning more about 
meditation and mindfulness and um, your social media stuff? So you can find me on my website. It is www.melaniepensack.com. And on that website, I list all of the meditation offerings that I'm doing here in the Los Angeles area in nature and a lot of the coursework that I'm doing. I'm going to be launching a six-week class this year as well online at some point for professionals and people to sign up for. So keep an eye out for that. You can also find me on social media, on Instagram, Destination Speech, and on Facebook, Destination Speech. For my meditation work, you can find it at Meditate at the Beach on Instagram and Facebook. We're definitely going to link to all of your social media profiles and your websites uh, in the show notes. Um, but let's talk a little bit about a, a giveaway you're offering uh, our, our dear Talking With Tech listeners. I'm running one free 30-minute coaching session with a professional or a parent. And to sign up for this giveaway, you can go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. So by providing your email, then you'll get a free meditation recorded by me. And then if you win the free coaching session, we will go into mindfulness basics and how to apply mindfulness into your life and into your particular situation. So the idea is you'll feel confident being able to set up a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice and incorporating it into your life, however it works. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think it's a really valuable resource. Um, I definitely want you to coach me, Melanie, on how I can incorporate <laughs> mindfulness. I mean, we talk a lot about mindfulness and I am a huge fan of Melanie's work. I've done multiple meditations with her where she's led the meditation and she's fantastic. So um, you don't want to miss this giveaway. Definitely head over to her website, sign up for her email. Um, and we will of course link to that in the show notes. Um, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited to share all the work that you're doing. And I think it's really important, um, especially for, you know, the population of speech therapists and parents that are listening to this podcast. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be able to share this with you. And I really feel so hopeful that this is a tool that's going to help a lot of people and a lot of children. So thanks for bringing this out into the public. Absolutely. So if you guys haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. You can go on iTunes and leave us a review. We love hearing all of the great things that you guys have to say about the content about the content that we bring you. Um, if you haven't joined our Facebook group, definitely search Talking With Tech. You can join the group. There's a lot of really great conversations going on in there. Um, so for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined with Melanie Pensek. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will talk to you guys next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.